All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Before we jump in, quick disclaimer, the views expressed by my co-host today are their personal views, and they do not represent the views of any organization with which the co-hosts are associated with. Uh, nothing in the episode is construed or relied upon as financial, technical, tax, legal, or other advice. You know the deal. Now, let's jump into the episode. Hey everyone, this episode is brought to you by Maverick Protocol, a suite of liquidity tools built around an innovative AMM. Maverick helps token projects, DAO treasuries, LPs, or basically anyone in DeFi shape their liquidity with efficiency and flexibility. How, you might ask? Stick around and you're going to be hearing about them more later. Now, on with the show. All right, everyone, welcome back to another weekly roundup at Bell Curve. You got Michaels 1 and 2 and Vance. Guys, welcome. We're back. We're so back. Why don't we start with talking about, the, obviously, we have the SBF trial that's going on right now. We're just talking a little bit before we can get into some of the details about the trial, which I feel like there have been a couple of tidbits that have trink, uh, trickled out. Nothing you know, that we didn't really know going in. I think the one thing that has surprised people, I think maybe not you guys, but I, I was surprised by the takes of Michael Lewis, actually, in the book Going Infinite. So obviously, Michael Lewis... The backstory here for folks who didn't know is before FTX was revealed to be you know, a fraud um, and all the criminal activity that was going on there, alleged criminal activity that was going on there, uh, Michael Lewis was planted. And we can get into this kind of an interesting backstory. Nick Carter has a really great thread about the IEX Lewis relationship. He obviously wrote Flash Boys, which was the accusation being sort of a, an advertisement for IEX. FTX has a big financial relationship with IEX, so maybe there's some kind of relationship there. But either way, Lewis found himself a plant for about six months in FTX offices. This book was being written, obviously, then FTX imploded. And at least my assumption was going to be that, all right, he probably did a lot of work, but he's going to have to rewrite it. And he came out and did a 60 Minutes interview and a whole bunch of other publicity, essentially with the, the through line being these were some kids they had a profitable business, but they just got in way over their heads. And now there is, you know, quote, this SBF sized hole in the world. It's just been a pretty bizarre take. The other uh, blatantly or glaringly incorrect uh, representation of the facts is that this was a bank run. And there can only be a bank run if you have under collateralization in a system because you don't have all the money available to be able to pay people back. And even if it is denominated in something else, you know, we, We've talked about on this podcast, I don't know, uh, nine months ago, about how it was pretty clear that there was rotation from assets that they didn't like into assets that they did like. So even mm -hmm. if you didn't have a one-to-one -one backing of the assets that people deposited into into FTX, let's say someone puts in a Bitcoin and they're going to sell the Bitcoin and maybe buy you know something like FTT or Maps or something that you know they were trying to promote. Even if you didn't have that one-to-one, <clears throat> -one, um, you still should have the value to back up all of the deposits, uh, especially if you have a highly profitable business. And that's how exchanges work. Uh, you know, that's not how um, that's not how banks work, and and hence why if you have a bank run, you know, you do based off of Basel requirements have to have a certain amount of cash and treasuries and liquidity to be able to backstop the amount of loans or balance sheet that you develop as a bank. That's the business model of a bank. Uh, a bank run is not possible with a one-to-one -one backed exchange, period, end of story. I had a couple of reporters reach out to me about, you know, like, why do you believe this business wasn't profitable? Very, very simple logic tree. So people only wanted to trade on FTX because you could trade against Alameda. You could trade crazy mobile coin perps. You could trade, you know, the Trump win-lose. You could trade, like, you know, all these, like, 
you know, basically shitcoin perps that they launched and then subsequently destroyed. Like they were the initial liquidity providers for that. If you remember the Stargate uh, IEO, they bought all of those tokens and then proceeded to seed the perp and trade against people. And that was why you traded there. You could trade against Alameda. And Alameda was so bad at trading that they had to steal customer deposits to backfill the, the shortages. Like ipso facto, this was not a profitable business. It was just margin that was being internalized and then lost by Alameda. And that's really the only reason that people wanted to trade there. Same thing with Soul. You know, same thing with the holy trinity of like Serum, Soul, and I forget what the other one was. There's a third one. But like, this was not a profitable business. Not even close. Um, and I think the only other surprises to me are like just the, I've read parts of the excerpts on Twitter. Like some of the details are so sorted that Michael Lewis is sharing. Do you see the one where he's like going through all the women that SBF slept with and like SBF was like whispering him this to him? It's like yeah. Michael Lewis, like, do you need to go to horny jail? Like, what is what is wrong with you, man? Um, Like, you know, he's like he was like, you know, different girls every night of the week and like windmill dunking. What a Chad. It's like, dude, how old are you? Um, He just a picture of a person that was totally enamored by SPF. And for some reason, won't let it go. And I wonder if it's because of stupidity, if it's because of incentives or if it's because there's something he's trying to like ex post facto rationalize for himself or his audience. But there's funny, I've, I've seen a lot of Twitter comments from like ex Solomon traders, which is where he used to work. And they said, you know, it's good to see uh, Michael get exposed as a midwit that couldn't make it as a trader. It was a terrible at sales and is likely to fall for, you know, the, uh, the sordid song of, you know, some random guy who you pretend he's a billionaire for a short period of time. I, I think, you know, he's just, frankly gotten this one completely wrong i mean he's gotten things wrong before he wrote liars poker thinking that it would be this in entire expose of the bond trading uh, uh shenanigans that were going on at solomon brothers and you know it would destroy the industry it take down the culture of finance it did nothing more than engender a culture of finance bros for multiple decades you know that yeah. became it was like the wolf of wall street right like before before that, he may understand how to sell books, but I don't think he understands the culture around the things that he's writing about. The first thing that I actually thought about when when I was watching all of this, and I, I'm I'm conscious of the fact that we live in a little bit of a bubble and we're like really into the details and it's like, hey, it's this thing that you really care about. And now you're raising your hand. But I my first thought was, man, maybe we gave the HFT guys a hard time. And I think it's sort of an open secret that anyone that works in high frequency trading is like, this book's not accurate. And what, what struck me, I think there are two levels to this. And one, there was, I was listening to this interview that he gave. It wasn't the 60 minutes interview, but I was struck by, it's not like he got it wrong. He, a little bit wrong. He got it a hundred percent, 180 degrees wrong. And he, the, the phrase that he used was, he keeps calling it a profitable business, which it just wasn't a profitable business. So there's just a factual inconsistency there. But the way he describes it is there was this profitable casino, FTX, and then there was Alameda. And if it hadn't been for Alameda, then FTX could have gone on and survived. And that is this 180 is exactly degrees. FTX argument too. This is 180 degrees the wrong. We, remember, we had a conversation when FTX was imploding and we all were like, hey, well, which, which one do you think he actually wanted? Which one mattered more? And the answer is Alameda because FTX was never real. But Alameda was the vehicle that he was using to siphon all of the wealth out of FTX. So to paint it like that from Michael Lewis, 
is just so incorrect, but it's almost too perfectly incorrect. And then you start to look at it on multiple instances and you're thinking to yourself, wait a second, this happens multiple times. How much of the entire thing is wrong? All of the body of work. I think his explanation was completely wrong. Pretty disgusting. No respect for victims. And the weird part is like in the 60 minutes interview, he's like, you know, what was he really doing? You know, stealing or, you know, rehypothecating money from just crypto traders. Like who really cares about them? You know, he was going to give Trump five billion not to run. And so it wasn't so bad, was it? It's like, no, um, those don't make it OK to steal from people, A, and B, like the chances that that Trump phone call ever happened. I'm putting that at about one percent. Like, who knows what Michael Lewis was fed, where his primary source of information were, how much SBF was just bullshitting and making up as he went along. Uh, I, I don't know. It, I just think it's so sad that's the book we got. What will be very interesting, I think, is what the ultimate outcome of this trial is. Because in a certain way, it's kind of putting the story that Michael Lewis purported which, as you as you just said, is the same story that SBF is trying to to put forward in court. It put that's on trial. It put that it puts that case on trial. That storyline. Hey everyone, wanted to take a quick second to shout out this season's partner, Maverick Protocol. Now, many of you probably know Maverick as an innovative AMM, which they are, but in reality, they're a lot more than that as well. Maverick is a suite of tools for DeFi users and builders that allows them to put liquidity where it will get the most work done. Since Maverick launched in March, they have been gobbling up market share. And at the time of this recording, which is the end of September, on a trailing seven-day volume basis, Maverick is now a top three DEX by volume, and they support over 50% of the volume on the L2 ZK Sync era chain. Maverick enables LPs and token pairs to process higher volume with limited TVL, which allows them to support some of the highest levels of capital efficiency for LSTs like Rapsteef. Another very cool feature is something called Maverick Boosted Positions. So that allows protocols looking to bootstrap their token liquidity to target the shape of liquidity of any token pair with surgical precision. Maverick is backed by some of the leading institutions in crypto, Founders Fund, Pantera, Coinbase Ventures, Finance Lab. They are all backing Maverick in their vision to revolutionize the next generation of DeFi dApps and helping them build their liquidity in all market conditions. Click the link at the bottom of this episode let them know that I sent you. Thanks, guys. Let's talk about the over/under on years. Like what? Like what? Like let's put hard numbers to it. Does he get off light? What does that mean? Does he get off not light? What does well, that mean? So ma- maximum is one hundred and fifteen. Um, I mean, Vance and I have talked about this. I, I'm I'm putting the line somewhere at twenty. You know, is it is it well under that? Is it well over that? That that's kind of the question. Federal crimes, you also don't get good uh, good behavior out early dynamics on either. So he'll be there, you know, for however long he gets. I, I would say 20 is probably the right number. I, w- I would take the – sadly, I would take the under on that. I would take the under too. How long Same. did Bernie Madoff get? Did he, he 165. Got 165. 165. And then Elizabeth Holmes uh, for securities laws violations – uh, the sentencing rubric that she received was one year for every $11 million of fraud. And yep. it was found to be that there was approximately $121 million of fraud. And, and really what that represents is when she went to go and raise $121 million from investors, there was misinformation. There, were, there was deliberate fraud about the representations of the company <clears throat> and people 
put in $121 million and then it obviously went to zero. Uh, so that was sort of the, the, you know, black and white of what happened with her and, and, you know, 11 years for $121 million of fraud. I'm getting the same on the, I don't know. I, I just don't understand. One thing I'm very confused about is why this narrative is still hitting of a bank run. I, it wasn't a bank. It was an exchange. And I don't feel like that's a huge logical leap to make. I don't think that's something that you need to have a background in this industry to understand. There was no, there shouldn't have been rehypothecation going on. So why is that line still flying? <laughs> I don't get it. I don't, I don't know enough it. about the case or about the law uh, to know the minutia of what else they could use. But if you just use the same rubric that was used in the Theranos case, you know, how much money did FTX raise on false pretenses? And how much was raised deliberately misrepresenting, you know, all of the things that they had, all, you know, the connections with Alameda, the use of funds, the profitability, like if anything's incorrect on that pitch deck, um, you know, coincidentally, Matt Huang is taking the stand today. He, he is a defense witness today from Paradigm. Uh, and so I think part of the case is going to be representing that. And in that case, you know, it, it looks bigger than, and I don't know if they can prove it. I don't know what's going on in the case uh, outside of what we hear afterwards. But I, I do think that there is a through line there in terms of just pure securities fraud. The unanswered questions for me are probably the most interesting part. I put one of them, you know, which is like what happened with that hack. Uh, you know, right, I guess it was November 9th or whatever that day was, you know, the 500 million that was stolen, who did it, who owns it, where's the money, because it's moving around right now. A lot of it's wash trading NFTs on Solana, and some sort of like weird laundering operation. I don't know. That's one. The other one I'm really curious on is the identity of Chef Nomi, and whether we will learn that. And if it was SBF, because one thing that I'm curious about is, you know, Alameda started as this programmatic trading firm and they started with 170 and then they got redeemed down to like 30 or 40. Uh, and then, you know, somehow that turns into, you know, tens of billions of dollars at some point. My theory is that SBF is probably Chef Nomi, that he was basically the large scale industrial farmer of sushi, you know, turned that money around farming sushi at $20 at like a $5 billion market cap where they gave away 100% of the supply takes that, you know, that's basically his capitalization base, invests in Solana, log wealth ensues. And, you know, that's that's kind of like the story. But there is like this missing middle of like, bro, you didn't make billions doing this kimchi arb where you lost the Ripple token way, you know, like, like what happened in the middle? That would be one thing I would I would be looking forward to understanding. And, and Shkreli, who knows? He's like a court reporter now, which is great. Uh, he's like, you know, he's showing, he's like showing up live tweeting the whole, whole thing. Um, that's what he says he thinks is, is going to happen. So lend some credence to that. We're missing the, the whole middle part of the story. How, how did Alameda get so much money? I, I, I would love for us to be able to uncover that. I think the government is just going to take a stance that like, li listen, we have, you know, parts of this case that are just dead to rights. There's no way to deliberate on it. We don't need to confuse or, you know, add other flavors to this whole thing. We're just going to do the, the even, uh, you know, very straightforward path that, that I yeah. hope that we find out more, but I, I unfortunately think it's just going to be like, let's do this. Let's get it done fast and move on. I would settle for the, the right outcome happening 
my curiosity wants to know, but I'd be happy if just we get the right outcome here. The the other stuff that I've just like been thinking about as I read through the case and, and just the different things is um, there's this line. I think we've talked about it before where, you know, what's what's the utility of a bet where, <clears throat> you know, you keep doubling up uh, and you can do it infinitely until you, you know, get infinitely wealth wealthy or you go to zero. And like SBF has always thought of this as like the uh, St. Petersburg paradox. And it's like a highly valuable game for him because he would just always keep betting, keep trying to double up until he gets to infinity wealth. And in his own words, like lock into this hugely valuable existence. That really was like kind of the underpinning of everything that he was doing His risk management style his trading style, like taking these huge bets where, you know, the payoff would be 100x to one. It kind of just feels like that's how he ran the exchange, too. He's like, you know, if I get caught, I go to jail. But if I don't, you know, I, I become the wealthiest person on the planet and I can do all this effective altruism bullshit. You know where that doesn't line up, though, is what doesn't don't you hit some amount of money where you just don't need. I mean, a lot, right? Like, let's say a billion dollars. I mean, what, what can you really do with 10 billion that you can do with one outside of like the mega yacht? Right. That's like the only I, I think the hundreds of billions range gives you like nation state status. Which is kind of, you know, even the Bahamas thing, it, it kind of all lines up with that. Like, you know, he's, he, I mean, whether this phone call happened or not with Trump, I don't think it did. But like, he's like, you know, I can give him $5 billion not to run. That's where his head was at. He was also talking to the Bahamian government about paying off all of their debt, allegedly. Yeah, uh, you know, billion. yeah, that's so funny. Like there's all these little tidbits that are coming out. And the only way that you could possibly think about, you know, paying five here and eight here and, you know, pretty soon those small numbers become a really large number is if you're thinking in terms of hundreds of billions. And, you know, that that I think is probably where he was shooting. I also think, you know, maybe there was some truth to him thinking that, OK, uh, you're right, though. Like, Mike, you're right. There's no possible way that a human can spend that level of money over their lifetime other than if they're doing things like what we're talking about which is you know buying this you know get out of jail free card in the bahamas making sure the democrats win next time you know against trump um all that type of stuff is is as van said nation state level capital so the michael lewis excerpt where he's like no like tom brady really was his friend you know they had this very special friend you paid him $55 million. The the craziest I thought was... my friend if I pay him $55 million. Kevin O'Leary, $15.7 million for for 20 hours of work. How much do you trust all of that uh, Kevin O'Leary saber rattling against FTX or against Binance uh, in favor of FTX right as FTX was collapsing? Goes on CNBC. No, you know, CZ did this. I know it. I actually meant to bring my tinfoil hat and I forgot to bring it. But the the relationship that we were talking about with Lewis to because folks might not be aware of this. So, I mean, for those of you who read Flash Boys, Flash Boys was one of these books that Lewis wrote about HFTs. And the way that it was portrayed was people didn't understand what was going on. There was this nefarious force for why people weren't getting the execution that they sh thought they should. It was shrouded in secrecy. It's this world of high frequency trading. And it was ripping people off. And it sort of portrayed in the same way the big short sort of lionizes the the short sellers of the time, the Michael Burry's and uh, blanking on the, the other names, but um, sort of lionizes that group. There was this group of insiders within institutional finances as well, who were aware of this HFT problem, these predators that were preying on everyone. 
And it what it what it wound up with was the creation of this exchange, IEX. Now, IEX is pretty much, I we just call. It, I mean, it's not successful. It has not largely been successful as an exchange. IEX stands for the Investors Exchange, and it's supposed to be much more friendly for investors, but no one really and, wants and, it. And just just to be clear, this this started as a uh, you know equities securities exchange, not yeah. had had nothing to do with crypto. Yeah, thank you. Um, so timeline here, and this is all just this just comes right from uh, from from Nick Carter here doing his little investigative. Him and Matt are actually in another <laughs> life; they could be investigative journalists. <laughs> <laughs> they, they like go in and get all the details. They, um, they do, uh, but this is really helpful. Like in March of 2022, FTX and IEX pre partnership hold joint meetings with the SEC, aiming for safe harbor U.S. operations. April 2022, FTX US announces an investment in IEX. The deal is described as small and strategic, size not disclosed. Later emerges that it's $270 million, described as a contr- controlling stake, uh, as reported by the Financial Times, large stake with the option to buy. May slash June of 2022, Michael Lewis begins closely shadowing SBF in order to write a hagiography, presumably similar in tone to Flash Boys. Uh, summer of 22, Gen- Gensler keep meetings with I- IEX and FTX's lobbying Congress. So, yeah, I mean... The timeline, I clearly, if Michael Lewis wrote this book about IEX, he knows Ronan and all the guys over at IEX. I mean, also, IEX is know? the protagonist of the Flash Boys story. Mm. You know, the yeah. book ends with like, and these guys are going to fix it. Right. And then it didn't work. Yeah. What do you think the chances are Michael Lewis introduced IEX to FTX? Probably higher than like 20, 30%. Or it could, like- have been the re- it could have been the reverse. Hmm. Totally. I wonder if Michael Lewis has any financial incentive in IEX or otherwise. Like, something about this is so strange. And I don't think we're going to find it out exactly, but... One last thing, just because I want to leave FTX here, but do you guys understand, how how does the claims market work for FTX? So I was kind of looking at this a little bit this week. Anthropic, the AI company that, that FTX invested in, it's actually been doing pretty well. They raised a big round from Amazon. Then a couple days after Google, it looks like they're going to put in an additional $2 billion at around a 20 to $30 billion valuation. So that's good for FTX creditors. I, I think I saw they're trading between 30 and 40 cents on the dollar. I don't I don't know if that implies more recovery for that. Like, How does that market actually work, the claims market? <laughs> it is not a very, very efficient poorly. market. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I mean, none of like, there's been basically no big claims that have traded, despite everyone saying, you know, to the contrary. I do think that Galois sold theirs at like 14, 15 cents on the dollar, which like sounds bad, but also Kevin can make money and uh, like having the capital. Yeah, op- op- opportunity cost is, you know, totally. expect this in years. And, you know, it's amazing that Anthropic has been doing so well and that, you know, the recovery might be higher than initially expected, but Anthropic isn't exactly a liquid asset either. And, and we'll might not see, be valued properly either. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's being done at, I think 300 X revenue forward. So we'll see. Um, I do think the, 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 so I've heard like just on the topic of claims and, you know, distributing crypto that was uh, stolen uh, back to victims. I think in some ways it's a little bit of like a bullish airdrop. Like people not having their crypto is not helpful. If people are like somewhat recapitalized by a mixture of like, you know, uh, claims being distributed, 
price action getting a little bit better, you know, maker endgame, you know, providing a bunch of yield farms. Like, I do think there is a world where these are actually bullish events versus strictly bearish. But it all depends on the structure and having Galaxy starting to sell things for US dollars is kind of like the bearish side of it. But I don't think it's it's like necessarily like a one sided good or bad thing. I think there's nuance there. And having crypto people back with their crypto, I, I think it's just important in in general. I like this phrase they use the recapital uh, the degens need to be recapitalized. That's been that's a good that's stuck. Like they do. That. I mean, I think there's a few opportunities for that to happen coming up. And frankly, like I think of these as airdrops in many ways. Let's let's move on from from FTX. I want to talk a little bit about enshrinement with you guys in this this sort of trend. So Vitalik wrote this piece this week about uh, get the actual title of the piece. Should Ethereum be okay with enshrining more things in the protocol? And he actually, he spoke, I, I heard him speak at ECC back in July about this exact thing. He talked about it within the context of account abstraction and 4337. And basically he, he outlined this, this philosophy that Ethereum has taken for a very long time that was inspired by Unix, which is keeping as little inside the protocol as possible and pushing complexity out to the edges. But... Ethereum is a lot larger than it used to be back in the day. It's faced with much more complexity. And I think this was Vitalik's sort of like reasoning about, okay, maybe it does make sense to bring some things in the protocol. And he went through a bunch of different categories that this could apply to. And we'll link it in the show notes. I'd encourage folks to actually go and, and read it. He spent the most time talking about uh, count abstraction and 4337. And he walks through this entire history of trying to enshrine account abstraction or actually bake it into the protocol. And he talks about some of the technical challenges of doing that, but also why it wasn't prioritized at different periods of time. And it kind of gives you a very firsthand understanding of why this is such a complicated process and the sets of stakeholders that need to align on something like enshrining. So it was it was just a very good, is a really good history of that. And he, he goes through a number of other categories that this could apply to. So um, he talks about uh, ZKVMs. Um, he talks about uh, PBS, proposer builder separation, enshrining private mempools, liquid staking, and pre-compiles. And everyone should go and read this themselves. This is where I'm just going to, in my sense of, he kind of goes through and, and talks about the pros and cons of enshrining each one of these group of things. ZK EVMs, I think he was the most undecided on. The, the ending was enshrining ZK EVM EVMs presents both promise and challenges. The challenge being you sort of have to pick one set of standards and then you risk favoring one uh, one developer, basically. Um, EPBS, enshrining PBS is already, we the community's already basically decided that's going to happen. It's just an implementation detail and when it ends up happening. Um, liquid stake, uh, private mempools, uh, the technology, it seems like we need more technology there, but in theory, it's a good idea. Um, pre-compile seems okay. Liquid staking is probably the one that spends is worth talking about because the pushback on Lido has been heating up quite a bit, I would say in recent weeks. So we've talked about it on this show. It was interesting to hear Vitalik's take on it. My take on Vitalik's take is that he was balanced. Vitalik is always balanced when he talks about this stuff, but he did come out and actually say something, enshrining something like rocket pool or a mechanism that would support a rocket place that 
or a marketplace that Rocket Pool had built would make sense. Um, and this is where I'm firmly entering my own realm of speculation here, but I think it says to me, and if you take that with the the additional context of Dankrad and Danny Ryan and some of the leaders at the Ethereum Foundation pushing back really hard against Lido, I would just say it's indicative of the fact that at the very high, highest levels of Ethereum, people are concerned about the protocol. I have I have thoughts about that. I'm, I'm just like curious what you guys think about this. You want to enshrine, enshrine Rocket Pool in ETH? That is the least decentralized, worst option. I, I think Vitalik's take was honestly like pragmatic. And I, mm-hmm. I don't think he actually said we should enshrine anything on the LST layer. Uh, he basically punted on it. And he said like we need to be kind of pragmatic and Lido is kind of the best that we have right now. And Hopefully they continue to decentralize and there's things that you can do on the margin, like setting the churn limit lower that, you know, theoretically could help. But <laughs> like, I, 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 I kind of don't get it other than they have a sensitivity around the LDO governance token being structurally important to ETH. I mean, look, you have all these L2s that have their own governance tokens that are arguably taking fees from you. It's like, how do you pick which hill you want to die on? Um, I just don't, I don't see them being able to, A, really do anything about it. You know, it's still growing faster than any other LST protocol. Their efforts are probably better used to coordinate and make it better in partnership versus getting into a antagonistic relationship with the 9 million ETH that are staked in Lido today. It's on staking in general, uh, from Pete to Trough, and I think Pete was around June, maybe mid to late June in terms of the validator queue. It's it's literally down ninety percent. Like there there isn't really as much I think of an issue with <clears throat> needing to have to change dynamics of like churn uh, um, limits, uh, which is effectively withdrawal limits, or or making it taking it longer uh, to get into the uh, validator ecosystem. Like I think a lot of this stuff you know is going to sort itself out. <clears throat> so I think that just generally like this. LSDs are not, uh, are frankly just not growing as fast as they once were. There just aren't as many people moving into the into the validator process as there was. It's starting to peter out. Um, so I think you know market sentiment will probably change. Therefore, but I will say as more of like a global comment on any sort of enshrinement, there are things that I think you know make a lot of sense. Just uh, you know something like a account abstraction is a perfect example. You know it, it's it's a feature. It should be something that is in the protocol itself, um, you know, potentially pre-compile as well. Um, like there, there are things that make sense to just bring them in because instead of having some third party go off and develop it and everybody has to adopt that standard, this should be part of the standardizations. Um, and it's once again, Vitalik, you know, pushing the ball forward, having the conversation around things that he used to think were, you know, sacred cows or, or maybe not quite, but something along those lines. And, questioning some of his previous assumptions. Uh, I think it's healthy for, you know, the protocol to, or, or any of the people um, who are working on the protocol to think about different ideas that may change as market sentiment and, and market dynamics change. I, I do think, Michael, just to talk about the, the drop in the active validator queue, I think, <clears throat> so we've done research, correlations between positive price movement and e-staking, extremely strong. I think, you know, if you believe that there's, you know, a bull market around the corner like we do, I think staking activity is going to pick back up. The other two tailwinds that I think staking is going to ride are uh, A, restaking, 
you know, that that is just like another source of yield. There's more money on the table. There's more people that will want to come and grab it. And the second one, frankly, is just maker endgame. Um, you know, Rapsteeth, if you look at Spark SubDAO, is the main form of collateral that's being used there to do all sorts of loops and interesting types of borrow trades. You know, there's just going to be more yield on the table. It's going to drive specifically liquid stake tokens up, specifically the ones that have enough network effects and collateral backing to be used in these protocols. So I, I see no other real option other than for Lido to grow uh, and to figure out how to decentralize itself further. Um, I don't think you can really reverse put the cat back in the bag and re-enshrine it at this point. The funniest tweet that I saw today was someone tweeting that uh, the EF should just take Lido private at $10 a token and enshrine it that way. <laughs> like, look, of all the options on the table, I think that's probably the most realistic. I, as a more, I like the way you phrase that, like a, maybe a more global comment on this. I just, I think we've talked about this before, but I don't think this is, if you view Ethereum as a credibly neutral platform for applications, I just don't think this sends the right message to developers. And I, I think it's, this was, whether it was explicit or not, what Lido is doing, first of all, I think they're a best intentions team and they're just doing what the incentives say to do. And they found a market which is winner take all or winner take most pretty naturally. And they're devoting an enormous amount of their incentives to decentralizing. You know, this isn't a team that feels like they're acting in bad faith. And I, yeah, I just, I disagree with the the philosophy. One of the kind of classic lines that I think in the, in the 2010s was really prevalent in the startup world, especially with, with VCs was um, VCs, you know, really hammering entrepreneurs who were trying to raise money. And, you know, their big question was, well, why wouldn't Google just build this themselves? And I think that that sentiment is sort of the kind of the same thing. Like if you open up the door for uh, product uh, or, or major, um, major features as opposed to like minor protocol upgrades or products themselves versus minor protocol upgrades, you kind of put yourself in that same camp of like, you know, Google in the ecosystem who sucks up all the oxygen and, you know, becomes, uh, you know, the, the prohibitor of entrepreneurship and innovation, because you want to have that stretch out to the edges, um, is my opinion at least. And I, I, I hope we don't get into a situation like that. I mean, how that ends is you just have to underwrite all of your friends and enemy relationships and figure out who's who and what happens when an L2 has, you know, for a single day or two more fees than ETH. Are they friends? Are they enemies? Or, you know, should we re-enshrine the L2? Because that's kind of like the dank sharding roadmap is, you know, scalability on the L1, you know, the L2s kind of lose some of their relative, you know, fee transaction, whatever advantage. Like, I just don't think that's a road that Vitalik is prepared to go down. Because once you start going there, you need to go all the way. It just doesn't make sense not to. Yeah, I, I think that there's a philosophical thing here, which is this, this is sort of, I don't really think this is what this is, but in it's sort of, it's more socialist communist than it is capitalist, I would say, this viewpoint. And if you look at most communist regimes and countries, it require, it they run counter to human nature. So it requires this, actor to sit in and actually be sort of a very authoritarian actor because it, it is there's a forcing function that is making everyone act in ways that are counter their, to their personal incentives. And I would just say, I don't think this is the route that blockchains want to go down. And you, 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 you're already seeing it. It's cropping up there. First of all, Guart 
is there a better new account to crypto Twitter than Gwart in the last like six months? I mean, it they make me laugh all the time, but it's this it's the beginnings of this pushback against this concept of Ethereum alignment. And I think it's Ethereum alignment is a great thing. Ethereum has great values. It's I I firmly believe it's all done in really good intentions, but at the same time, it's starting to feel a little Illuminati-esque. It's like we don't have any transparent rules here. Like what makes something ETH aligned versus not ETH aligned? Whenever that stuff's not transparent, I think it's it not will... ETH either. Like I've been following people since the since Maker announced that they're going to do like in five years, like a SVM backend SVM, for yeah. government. People are like, man, ever since they announced the SVM and started tokenizing uranium, like they've really lost their way. I don't even think they're aligned with, you know, it's like, what are you fucking talking about? Like that, it's not even in, like, like Rune is like the assets are going to stay on ETH. We're going to keep building there and we're funding all these EVM clients. And that's just like not good enough for some people. I, I think it's, it's almost like the EF is now pandering to like the, the Twitter, you know, outrage crowd, which is like not good they should not do that so i don't know everyone in the ef the people that i've interacted with there i think that i think they are really like technical and heads down and i don't think this is the majority of how ef people feel but i i, I don't know i think it's the, the other thing the, the reason why by the way i think this is an important issue to to push and like i i did see someone tweet today that basically putting the onus on consumers and Consumers should be conscientious and value decentralization and should stake with a multitude of different LST providers, little LST providers. And it's like the what that is like is like you should be like you shouldn't bank with JP Morgan. You should be a conscientious banker and put your money in small community banks because of your values. And it's like, no, you should put it with JP Morgan and Bank of America and do the thing that's safest for you so you don't lose your money. And if we all decide as a society that there shouldn't be you know, one or two big banks, then we should make a systems level change, but don't put it on the consumer. I think that's totally wrong. And it will probably get people to lose money. That That's the most likely outcome from a scenario like that. Go with low cap, you know, untested, no network effect LSTs. I just think that's, that's where that could be really damaging. And that's, that is where I think that's super important to push back on. That's not <laughs> yes, good. you did lose all your money, but for a brief period of time, you were fully aligned with the EF. <laughs> And and I don't even I don't even I wonder if this I because again I'm not trying to like defend but the people I know at the EF don't really think like this I do wonder if it's this kind of thing where Twitter yeah. has just run with it or something it's also like you know I think of this as like a very small like a bear market thing yeah I think so too even the bear everyone starts coming for each other you know at some point and mostly nothing happens I, I yeah. I've, I've been through, and Michael too, and, and you as well, you've seen so many metas come and go. You know, uh, I remember when Wasm was going to be the thing. We were going to write smart contracts in Python and JavaScript. Yep. Lost track of that one because <laughs> it didn't happen. <laughs> yeah. Like, if you don't like something on crypto Twitter, just wait three days. It'll be gone. It'll disappear. Actually, Jason and I, I was talking about, we, we did a little offsite this week and we did like a super in-depth uh, history of the 2018 to 2020, 2020 through the current period. And we just like relived some of these like trends and you just see these things just come and go. Um, totally. Wait, like, what were some funny ones? Do you remember, do you remember Malta as a, as a place, as a thing? Yes. Like, yes. That yeah, was like the place post Asia that Binance I'll, moved to. 
Yeah, I'll I'll actually get these headlines. We we do these headlines. It wasn't just like you know Coin Telegraph. It was uh, New York Times and Bloomberg and Forbes. The headlines were like new crypto hub, yada yada. They actually had eight thousand people at an event in the first year, like stuff like that. Um, that was a pretty funny one. Today. <laughs> I didn't know that that many people could fit on Malta. Me either. <laughs> they launched their own cryptocurrency. Remember yeah. that? Mimblewimble, yeah. the petrodollar. Uh, there's so many random ones. But Oil-backed stablecoins. <laughs> that was one that people were really pumped really about. <laughs> and oil went to negative three. And now it's like, whoops. <laughs> one similarity I forgot to point out on the enshrinement debate is that's actually occurring over in Cosmos at the same time. So uh, in Cosmoverse, which happened this week in Istanbul, Stride announced a, a sort of proposal and wanted to get a temperature check on a potential acquisition of Stride by the hub. So they wouldn't necessarily call it enshrinement. That's not the word that they would use because they have this entity called the hub over in Cosmos land. But they're, that's it's kind of like the hub has had this identity crisis where there isn't really a good monetary or economic model or just value prop baked out for the hub. So this would kind of, just to connect this with the Lido debate, there have been attempts over in Cosmos land to solve some of the problems that ETH is experiencing with their liquid staking. So they introduced something called the liquid staking module, which makes the hub aware of and able to regulate the liquid staking that's going on in of at least Atom or staked Atom, which is pretty cool. And you, this could this is kind of like a trend further in that direction where actually the the stride which is the leading liquid staking provider over in cosmos would get absorbed into the hub so it's more functionality for the hub it's a clearer value proposition but it also is more credible neutrality and decentralization for stride as a liquid staking provider um so again they don't call it enshrining it into the protocol but it's the same premise it's they're doing it for the same sort of reason um which is which is kind of cool um and what it makes me think is just to get back to this EA debate a little bit, because I, I really don't think the Ethereum alignment thing is a negative sounding thing, but they have a branding problem because it feels very Illuminati-esque. But one of the big differences that I've always thought about between Cosmos and Ethereum is Cosmos does have token voting, which has a lot of drawbacks, but at least like, you know, there's there's voting and governance there. ETH has no token voting and a lot of the governance of the protocol doesn't take place in a super transparent way or there's no formal structures it, it is transparent there are dev calls and things like that but there aren't formal structures so i do wonder as eth enshrines more and more if the solution is like we don't want to deal with lido enshrine something like this enshrine this ekevm eventually it's going to have to govern all this stuff so if there's no formal governance mechanism do you, do you guys see that as being sort of a tension or I don't know, it's just a fundamental difference between Cosmos and ETH. There, there is some sort of formal governance, like the stakers have the power at the end of the day. Um, and so if this ever comes to pass in a very contentious way, which like I do have a lot of respect for the EF, I don't think they're going to let it come to that. Um, then there will be some sort of voting, even if it's signaling. And I think that will be the start of a new type of government process, government governance process. Um, I don't think token voting is good for the big L1s. Um, it introduces too much volatility at a stage where it's probably too mature. I think you can also say the same for, you know, going down the path of enshrining things. Like what if we had this debate on Bitcoin? It would be like a civil yeah. fucking war. 
Um, and that's what ETH when when it really when the chips are down does well is it like coordinates it actually has like the not like illuminati but like the main people can get together and plot a path forward um and i expect that is going to be the case here maybe some changes on the margins but um you know you're trying to build the plane while you're flying it and once you start going down the path of fixing things everything you know you're a hammer and everything looks like a nail so i, I would advise against it uh, it's cool to see it play out in smaller ecosystems though i, I think there is Product market fit for that, probably in a different way. I tend to agree with that. We're talking about ETH futures. ETH futures launched this week. Uh, it was kind of um, like a sudden start. Like there was rumblings, I think last Thursday that it was going to happen. And then Friday, there was like this like hurry up offense that was run by the SEC to get everyone ready ahead of a potential government shutdown, which didn't end up happening. Um, and they launched and it was funny on the first day everyone was like oh like these are not like what the fuck like there's only two million dollars of first day volume for van Eck. i think the things you need to understand are number one like these people were rushed out the door there was no like you know month long heads up it was you know creating demand on the first day number two 50 percent of etfs run at, at a loss like there are so many etfs they're so hard to actually get any sort of volume for this still made for a top 10 ETF debut this year, even with the muted volume that it had on the first day. By day three and a half, I guess we're at right now, we're at like $42 million of volume across all of them. And, you know, this is a product that's going to have probably in the next few months, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in it. Like to me, that's a huge success. And I think the even bigger thing on the background is Ethereum is officially, you know, not a security. And, and you saw Brian Content say that you saw all these government people say that, but like, this seems to be the real lasting impact of regulatory clarity on the second largest crypto asset. So I just see, I'm not, I'm not going to name any names, but certain fund managers, you know, I can see what they're doing. They're trying to like talk the price down or like, you know, do different things. And I just think it's worth pointing out that there's a lot of context and nuance and that this is actually a pretty successful start. Um, despite all the Twitter kind of gather. I think it got a bit of a bad rap because Bitto got more volume and it was getting compared to that, but totally different point in the cycle. I mean, that came out during the bull market, so not really a fair yep. comparison. Yeah, it came out. It came out of the actual top. What? Yeah. Wasn't it like uh, October twenty first or twenty second or something like that? It was. Right. It was give or take one month from the absolute top. That indicator just remains undefeated in terms of of timing. The one question I have is like. What is a direct? I, I know that there's been some analysis on like spot buying of assets, particularly Bitcoin. How does that have a price impact? You know, for every net dollar that's being bought, what does that do to the value? Uh, you know, of all uh, of the market. And there was some, you know, leverage effect of like spot buying has. I, I can't even remember what the number, but I want to say like five to seven x uh, market impact in terms of you know what the what the purchase value is. I wonder what the ETH futures or any futures product does to the underlying spot value. Um, and I don't, I don't know if anybody's done that analysis. I would, I would imagine it's a little bit more muted just because of the way you know these these futures markets work. Eventually, you have to get down into something that's spot because <clears throat> the futures will have to hedge at a certain point, um, or someone will have to buy the asset at a certain point. But it's not, it's not a one to one. Um, and so I, I guess what I'm saying generally also, I think yesterday or, or potentially the day before former MD from black, uh, from BlackRock came out and said, you know, strong certainty that 
uh, SEC is going to uh, actually approve all of the spot Bitcoin ETFs at the same time in the next three to six months. And, you know, mostly because they don't want to give anyone an unfair advantage. Um, so you can imagine it's going to be a race, you know, if, when that ever happens uh, in the same way that we're talking about which ETF is doing well, compare it different times, different places. Um, but that race will be a really interesting one. I mean, that just becomes a marketing game at that point. Um, but that, that, if that goes, if that goes through in the way that they suggest it will, um, very interesting. I, I think, I, I mean, it's, it's so positive that we have that, we have the happening, like we have a really good setup in my mind. And I also like how Venek has been playing the ETH futures stuff where first day they tweeted out all caps, low volume, just like the JPEGs, like they're in this for the long run. They're starting to do marketing and you have to think about what are their alternatives? You launch like the 500th ESG fund. You launch the 600th uranium, you know, ETF. Like this is new. It's exciting for them and they're in it for the long haul. And that's what you want. Like access to these products is huge. and Their benefits are only going to be far felt when, you know, the buyers really start to show up. And I think we have a, a, a setup that'll, you know, be favorable for that. I tend to agree with that also. I, um, the Ven- Venek has been a real, they've been in it for a while. They were, at least when, when I started paying attention, and they were, I feel like, maybe mostly a, a Bitcoin shop back then. But when we helped create Off the Chain, which became the Pump Podcast later on, uh, Gabor Gerbach was one of the early guys to yeah. come on the show. And I remember thinking, like, oh, this is a TradFi guy, but he really knows his stuff about about crypto. So props I, to I Van Eck. And- I think Van Eck is going to be a big player in this. You know, it'll take time, but I think they're... They're doing it the right way. XRP got another minor win as well this week. So the appeal that the SEC filed got struck down. So this 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 is not a necessarily a slam dunk win, and the SEC still has the option to come back. But what it is is it's just kind of another another strike against them. Um, so what I don't know what you guys made about that, but it actually seems like kind of big news that went slightly under the radar. Not a lawyer, but I've listened to a lot of them talk about the situation. What they did, uh, what the SEC did was they filed what's called, I think, an interlocutory appeal, which means we need to stop the process of this current case. We need to stay it until we can get resolution on the summary judgment that they just received, in particular, I believe, having to do with um, primary sales being sales of securities, secondary transactions happening on exchange being non-sales of securities, um, non-SEC jurisdiction. Um, And uh, I believe the bar to get an interlocutory appeal is is fairly high. Um, And so, uh, yeah, the the judge decided that the SEC did not meet that bar and and denied the interlocutory um, um, process. What this means, though, is that the rest of the case, in particular, uh, the case against Brad Garlinghouse and Chris Larson, need to follow through um, and continue forward. And then once that is settled, the SEC can appeal or Ripple can also appeal, depending on what the judgment is um, in in the rest of the case or anything that's happened so far in the case, Um, because Ripple didn't win all of the different things that they were they were alleging. Um, So. Really, what this means is that um, timelines now become a variable of interest. Um, estimates of maybe this case gets finished sometime in the April, May 2024 timeline. 
which means that at that point you can have uh, an appeal process begin, which pulls you know the entire process again for this entire case. And who knows how much you know they would want to appeal on? Who who knows how much they'd have to go back and and relitigate? Um, but it sort of starts the clock again for this entire case. Um, and so that that probably gets the can down the road to a, a post twenty twenty four timeline. Um, which means that the summary judgments that exist so far um, are going to be kind of the um, the the state of perspective um, for the time being, and, and probably for you know the next eighteen months at least. Connecting this back to kind of like what we see with entrepreneurs and <clears throat> what the sentiment is on the ground in every bear market, it usually gets very unfashionable to launch tokens or even like think about launching them. And we saw this, you know, in the 2018, 2019 bear market compound was ne never going to launch a token. It was going to be an OTC desk. And then, you know, price action changed. There's a little bit of regulatory clarity. And then it was like very much in the zeitgeist to launch tokens. And it feels like we've almost come in that full circle in this bear market too, mm. where like we met with a couple of entrepreneurs based in SF and New York. And they're like, yeah, I mean, like, you know, optimism launch token we, we can figure out a foundation and you know the stakes are worth it for us where we think this could be big enough where you know we'll, we'll you know fight the charges you know go to court you know whatever people are emboldened in a way that they haven't been in a while but it's not kind of like the tourists like it's not worth it for them anymore and like the jig is up on creating vaporware and selling a token but there's real entrepreneurs who are just no longer scared and I think that's kind of the silver lining of it, where, you know, we need to see where where U.S. regulations go to tell where to tell where the space really goes in the U.S. long term. But until that happens, it feels like it's no longer a barrier, whereas probably six, you know, certainly a year ago, people were too scared to really do anything. Um, that feels to have changed. The Ripple decision only applies to Ripple. It doesn't apply specifically to anybody else. Uh, so <laughs> this isn't, you know, a, a, a new a new a new framework that people can use but it maybe shows directionality as to where um ports at least are having their you know perspectives uh on on these different types of matters um but goes back to the same thing that we've been saying for the last i don't know how many months uh new regulations are going to be the thing that creates the framework for which entrepreneurship can happen in the digital asset space in in the u.s that's it did you did you guys see that Brad Garlinghouse got a XRP tattoo? <laughs> yeah, that worked well for the last guy who got I was a, gonna a say, tattoo. A jinx of this magnitude we did not need. Every lawyer we talked to told us that Ripple would not win. Or they would win on certain things, but not this. Oh, yeah. this was another, speaking of Malta, but th this is another flashback. I mean, back, do you remember in like 2018, 2019 period, for, first of all, lawyers used to talk a lot at our events and they talked, talked at a bunch of events and it was like, the hammer of God is going to come down. These ICOs were getting away with murder. All these people are going to go to jail, yada, yada. And in some sense, that was true. There were enforcement actions that were brought. Most of them were just civil and they ended up not being a gigantic deal in the meantime. So I don't know. We feel a lot of questions like that from newer BlockWorks employees or people that are newer to the space. And it's like, whenever someone's just aggressively shilling you doom, just maybe push back on it a little bit. And especially lawyers, I've actually started to feel a little bit hopeful. I, I don't know how much you guys have been paying attention to what's going on over in the macro for a little bit, but the what's going on with the sell off in longer dated treasuries is, I mean, it depends on how you view bullish. It's not 
you know, that doesn't mean that stocks are going to go up. It's bad for stock prices soon. But what it indicates is that like term premium are compressing. This is kind of the last thing that needed to happen before we could reset and the Fed could start uh, start cutting. Now, probably what ends up happening is something might end up breaking before then, which would not be excellent. But we do need some sort of catalyst uh, unless we just want extremely high rates for a long period of time. But that's all kind of lining up with what we were talking about around the having and the Bitcoin ETF. I also listened to the Odd Lots podcast this morning, listening to the Chicago Fed uh, president basically say the only time we would revisit uh, dropping rates is if unemployment or growth are going in the direction that doesn't bode well for the U.S. economy. Um, so I, I agree. Bear, sta- bear steepening, especially when you have an inverted yield curve, it, very strange. And you know, tons of people have talked about this. The yeah. Inversion has also dropped like seventy percent in the yeah. in the last you know few months. So you know the inversion is working its way through. I, I think it's we're probably going to see some interesting stuff in the bond market in the next couple of months. What that does to other asset sectors remains to be seen. You know some of the things that we're seeing here in San Francisco and commercial real estate. Do not bode well for the rest of the economy. There's definitely some some uh, consternation. I, I mean, as an example, uh, apparently there's effectively zero commercial real estate lending market right now. So everybody who has financing that's coming due um, on properties in San Francisco, which probably have a pretty sizable, you know, 30, 40, 50% markdown on the equity value. Um, you know, there's no market to be able to roll that loan. Um, so... Uh, it's tough. And you're going to start to see that in sectors, but commercial real estate is sort of like a slow moving train wreck, truly, because it's not market driven. It's not liquid and uh, doesn't trade like any other markets. There there will be some market that probably hits the skids at some point. Uh, It's just where I think things are going to net out in the next few months. Bonds are confusing to the lay person. Um, I had a friend that Owned, I'm not going to name who it is, but he owns a bunch of bonds. And he's like, hey, the yield's going up. I was like, not yours. Um, somebody's. <laughs> but, I mean, like that, that is just to That's explain hilarious. briefly, you know, the price goes down. That means the yield goes up because if you're holding a, you know, four and a half percent flavored tenure, um, you know, there's there's a there's a five out there now or close to it, you know, four, seven, five. And so that's the reason that the price drops. But the way to think about bonds, you kind of need to think about them in two ways. One is, you know, backed by the full faith credit military, you know, whatever regime of the U.S., uh, you know, they can always print more. Uh, it's very credit worthy, the safest asset in the world. It's also an asset where if you remove the fact that it's backed by all those things, it's, you know, 40 to 50 percent held, you know, in, in a meaningful sense by the Federal Reserve. Um, they are not buying anymore. Uh, in fact, they're starting to sell. And if that was an equity, you know, if somebody owned 40 percent of an equity and was like, you know what, I'm not buying anymore. In fact, I'm going to start selling. I mean, you just wouldn't want to buy that stock. Um, And the question is, you know, you you listen to CNBC. Same same shit every day, two hours of, you know, outrage that the 10 years going up, you know, how could they do this to tech stocks? There's too many bonds. Who's going to buy them? And it's like hours and hours and hours of this stuff. And the answer is like it's not going to be uh, the private sector. <laughs> yeah. This yeah. Is so they, a small technical detail. They, they don't technically sell the bonds. They just let right. them mature and they, they, them... they roll off the balance sheet, <laughs> which is also some like, you know, 
I guess, a readjustment of the definition of what QT is. The QT definition was supposed to be we just start selling bonds. I think if you tried to like galaxy scalp <laughs> all the bonds that they owned in the market, I don't know what would happen. But the bottom line is that they're just going to have to start buying these again. There, there is there is no version of the future where we're able to run, you know, two to three trillion dollar deficits per year and not buy our own bonds. There's a forced buyer here, um, which is, uh, you know, bank balance sheets, which obviously, you know, deposits aren't going massively up. In fact, they're kind of rolling off. There's also an element of pension funds um, that need to be buying these things just because um, they've got mandates to hit five, six, seven percent yield, and they're going to they're willing to take the loss for the next two to three years if they can lock in five point six percent on the thirty, um, or four point six percent on the thirty because you know they can lever it up and and earn hit that five. Um, I, I do think there's an element of we don't really know what's going to happen, I, but um, I don't see necessarily any other market that's as liquid that is going to potentially have issues just based off of all the wonky stuff that is happening like that if i was to pinpoint where something breaks generally i think it's going to be in fixed income i mean i don't know how you define break but if you look at something like tlt which is 20 oh, it's down plus 40 treasury, plus percent 50 plus percent 50 plus it's uh, it, it's a uh, the the index is 21 years old it is almost it is almost flat on now you've been getting fixed income that entire time but in terms of price appreciation, it's basically down to flat. The the person who I outsource my thinking to on this is Joseph Wang, the Fed guy. You've, you've had him and he's super smart. And he's basically just been tweeting for the past two years. The pain trade is higher in yields. He just keeps tweeting this and they just keep going higher. And now he's like, all right, we've run out of buyers. Uh, and it's been a lot of retail demand, you know, aping from bank account deposits to money market funds. Um, now the likelihood of something breaking is increasing where I think it could be imminent. And I think yield curve control is the end game, which is a fancy version of saying QE. And so like, they're going to have to buy these bonds, Michael, to your point, the pension funds definitely can buy them, but the scale of selling on the treasury side is far larger than the scale of buying that can be provided by somebody like a pension fund. And so, you know, this time is not different. Like the Fed will cut rates, they'll buy bonds, it'll be the whole thing again, it'll be under a new acronym, I'm sure, to confuse us. But like there is, the financial math is only one way. Like and and the spooky part, last part, spooky part is that the rates have been ripping as inflation and the signs of inflation has been decreasing. And so what that tells me is it's not an inflation story that's driving this. It's a supply demand story. And that is probably We've never hit that invisible ceiling before, mostly because we haven't let ourselves because we've been buying the bonds. But now we're, we're about to do some serious napkin math and probably realize what we've known the whole time, which is we just need to keep buying these things. Make a argument that there's sort of soft yield curve control in place right now. The banks have this thing called the BTFP facility. So Yield curve control is just you have a target for what you want to pay out in interest rates. Like the the most crude way of doing that is just like we're infinite bid at X price. Uh, mostly no one does that anymore. The Bank of Japan is the only one that really does that. We did it back in the 40s. But the another sneakier way that you could do it is say, hey, big holders of bonds, don't worry, don't sell. We're going to let you still like here's a lending facility where you don't actually have to sell and you could get like the full face value of your bond. 
Totally, but, that, but all they're all they're trying to do there, it is soft yield curve control, but all they're trying to do there is stop them from selling these bonds and stop the right. industry from rising further. Like they're trying to remove another seller uh, from the right. market. But the math is they are still the biggest the one math by is far. The, right. You know, it's it's like it's very easy to do on a napkin and tell that you just need you need to be buying these things. One of the interesting things now that this is a macro pod is uh, the UK rolled out their version of BTFP uh, uh, two, maybe it was a week ago or two weeks ago. But this is becoming like a standard operating procedure for most of these markets with a sovereign you know, uh, bond market where, okay, you're sitting on a huge loss. We'll lend you money against it. Um, and they're not just rolling it out for big banks. They're rolling it out for non-banking financial institutions. Uh, pension yeah. funds, potentially fintechs, like anybody who's sitting on a loss can pledge it as collateral. Surely this will work 100% of the time and there will be no negative externalities. It's just like, it literally is like the, you know, the boat starts leaking, like you, you plug it with your finger and then like, you know, you like get your other hand, you like put it on the other hole. It's, it's, it's the water is going to keep coming into the boat. Well, there should be consequences to your actions. I don't know. I, I, I don't want, I don't want people to be without pensions and without the things that they need. So I, I, here, I think it's very simple. They just need to start buying these bonds again. The bar report on Silicon Valley Bank, um, you know, saw they saw interest rates rising. They knew they were sitting on all this fixed income. They knew that interest rates rising would drop the value of the fixed income. They decided, and you know, they're they're freely w- uh, welcome to hedge, you know, their fixed income risk by buying interest rate swaps. <clears throat> they decided that the Fed wasn't going to be able to or have the gumption to raise rates, you know, as high as they have now, uh, and that they weren't going to buy the full swaps because they thought they'd be able to make more profit, you know, because swaps obviously cost a ton of money. You know, it's, it's hubris, it's, um, short-termism. It, uh, there, there will be more examples like that, but ultimately that was the death nail for Silicon Valley bank. All right, guys. Well, I guess we can, yeah, we can, we can wrap it here. Let's be good one, fellas.